The scripture reading this morning is from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let anyone turn, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do indeed thank you that you are a God who relents, a God who averts his wrath away from his people, Lord who opens up to us the path of repentance, the path of mercy, the path of forgiveness. We ask, O oh God, that as we step into this place under the umbrella of your mercy, that you would attend to our hearts and to our minds, that we would lift them to behold your character and your goodness. So, Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Nathaniel. Um, as you might uh, can tell, I'm struggling with my voice. Does it come through that poorly? I may be nursing this water up here a little bit this morning, so hopefully with your steady prayers and my careful preservation of this voice, maybe we'll make it through together. It is a blessing to have a God who relents, isn't it? It's a blessing to have a God who relents. I was reminded just this morning of a difficult meeting. Well, the kind of meeting that none of us would ever want to be in. The meeting of a man who called me, <coughs> told me about his prescription drug addiction. How he'd been struggling in business and had taken out quite a few credit cards and had gotten to the point where he had essentially maxed them all out. And it was time to come clean. And he didn't know how to tell his wife. And so he called me. We set up a meeting, unbeknownst to her, of all that was going to come forth in that meeting. And tears began to well up in his eyes as he choked out the words, I hope that you'll give me one more chance. Now at that point she didn't even know what she was going to hear. 
but he knew that was the cry of his heart. The story of Jonah is a story about second chances. It's a story that we all relate to very closely. For who among us have not been in a situation where either vocally or from the heart have thought or said, give me one more chance. In the passage that we're looking at today in Jonah chapter 3, we want to see that there are three different second chances that are given in this text. There is first, Jonah's second chance. There is second, Nineveh's second chance. And then third, there's the second chance that's made available to you and to me. I want you to see how this text begins with Jonah's second chance. Look with me right at the very beginning of the text in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, notice, a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. This may be one of my favorite verses in the book of Jonah, and that may strike you as somewhat strange. But I find it surprising that at the end of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah, who has just been belched up from the great fish, who is probably still picking seaweed out of his hair, who is still wringing out gastric juices from his clothes, uh, who realizes now that normal grade body wash will never do the trick again to get the stink off of him, and God comes to him a second time with the same mission. I find it absolutely ironic that the words that we just read at the opening of Jonah chapter 3 are the exact same words at the opening of Jonah chapter 1. When Jonah is told from the opening verses of this grand book, arise and go to Nineveh and speak out against it, and we promptly read, and Jonah arose and fled from the presence of the Lord. But whereas in this case, we read that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It's a remarkable transition. It's, it's unbelievable that God in his grace would come back to Jonah with the same mission a second time around. I have to believe that Jonah here would have been quite okay with the fact if God had just said, you know, let's just go to plan B. Let's forget this Nineveh thing. Or had decided to tap another prophet, a more faithful prophet, on the shoulder and say, hey, let's do this thing with you, rather than Jonah, the one who failed. But instead, God uses the runaway, recently vomited up prophet as the one whom he is determined to carry out his mission. He comes to him a second time. The text is teaching us very clearly that when God rescues us from our foolishness, when we flee from him, he doesn't release us from his call. When he rescues us from our sin and from our foolishness, he doesn't release us from his call. We kind of wish maybe he did at times, 
Like maybe God would, would now decide that I'm disqualified from this particular call. No, no, no. Apparently, God says, oh, no, I've got you earmarked for this mission. And one way or another, you're ending up in Nineveh. For salvation, as we read at the end of Jonah chapter 2, belongs to the Lord. Many of us feel this way, don't we not? When it comes to feeling disqualified for doing anything in ministry, anything in the kingdom of God, we think of our prior unfaithfulness and we think there's no way that God could use us. Oh yeah, we're still on the team, but we're like second or third string. We're on the practice squad. We're riding the pine. We're waiting for someone who is faithful to get hurt. You know, and then maybe we'll get a spot for a little bit of time until they come back from physical therapy. You know, we kind of feel ourselves to be disqualified because we have been unfaithful. That's not the spirit of the text here as we come to Jonah chapter 3. It's actually God who comes to Jonah a second time out of the midst of the disaster that was Jonah chapter 2. Out of the midst of unfaithfulness, the faithful God comes back to Jonah and he says, oh, now that you've really messed up, I bet I can do amazing things with you. I want you to see that Jonah's undergone an incredible transformation himself. You see, that's how it actually works with regards to change in mission. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 1, heard the call of God and fled from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah, in Jonah chapter 3, hears the call of the Lord and he answers according to his word. I want you to see Jonah's changed. We said last week that change is slow. It takes all of us a long time. But God is patient with us. Jonah's still got a lot of growing to do. We're going to see this in Jonah chapter 4. He's painfully human like you and me. He's got a long way to go. We're going to see that in Jonah chapter 4. We alluded to it even last week. But I want you to see right here, Jonah is on the road to change. Because the Jonah that once fled from the presence of the Lord is now the Jonah who says yes to the call of God according to his word. Now, what that means is that Jonah has learned to follow God when he calls. Now I want you to think of the irony of this. Jonah probably fled from the presence of the Lord because of the call of Nineveh because he didn't want to have the risk of potentially being killed walking into the great superpower of Assyria and calling out against them. The irony is, by not answering the call, he pretty much killed himself. Jumping off the, the boat into the water, sinking to the depths, and the fish just swallows him up at the very last minute as his lungs fills up with water, and he's right at the very edge of life, and God spits him back out on the beach. He did all of that to avoid difficulty. Have you, have you ever done that? You know, the Lord has called you into something, you go, no, I actually like this path, and you quickly learn, no, that's not the path. It looks so good. You know, it looked like it was the right way. Jonah actually did all of those things to avoid the difficulty of answering the call of God. Jonah chapter 3 doesn't do those things. You see, it's the same call, but it's not the same Jonah. The Jonah in chapter 1 was different than now the Jonah in chapter 3 because this is the one who's willing to answer. God's call has now become strangely persuasive when Jonah receives this call. Now, here's what I want you to see in this. God turns our disobedient detours 
into persuasive deliverances that teach us to follow his directions. God uses our disobedient detours and he turns them into persuasive discipline that leads us to follow his directions. You know, we, we call this colloquially the, hard, you know, the school of hard knocks. It's kind of the only school we learn at. You realize that? I mean, what do you really know that you kind of got before you made a mistake? Not much, if anything. What's the remarkable thing is that Jonah, as he has changed from Jonah 1 to Jonah 3, Jonah is now better positioned to do the mission that God has called him to now than he was then. Let me tell you why. As Jonah now goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, he goes as a man who has just been royally humbled and broken by God. If he had gone as Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, he would have gone with an us and them mentality. These terrible Ninevites, I can't believe God is wasting my time going to these pagans, Assyria of all places. I mean, this is the riffraff of which should never hear of any impending judgment. It's time for a Sodom experience to happen in Nineveh with no warning whatsoever. I'm not sure why God is doing this. And God begins to unfold Jonah's heart over the next chapter and a half. And now Jonah doesn't go in with much of an us and them kind of chip on his shoulder. He goes in as one of them. He goes in to speak warning as a man who has been warned deeply by the disciplines of God. He comes as a man to a broken people as a broken man. Do you see, we need to remember that God in his power and his strength, he is not the author of our sin, but he is sovereign over our sin. We're responsible for our rebellion, but the God's power is so great and his love is so deep that even our sin God uses to fit us for his mission. Isn't that remarkable? Even our sin he uses to fit us for his mission. That means that those of us who are sitting out there right now because of some prior sinfulness or because of some hidden darkness right now, thinking that there's no way we could ever be used in the kingdom, Jonah and God is speaking through this glorious book to you and he's saying that kind of thinking is far removed from the way I'm communicating to you today. I want you to know that your fitness for ministry doesn't have to do with your faithfulness. It has to do with my faithfulness. It has to do with what I'm going to do through you despite who you are. We need to remember that we were saved by grace and we live by it. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, right? It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But listen to this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? He's actually saying the calling that God has given to you to go forth and do his works is not going to come because you have been somehow credentialed to carry out effective ministry in the flesh or in the world's power. It's going to come because God, despite your crookedness, will draw a straight line. He's just that good. He's just that good. So Jonah, you're in a perfect position having been just vomited out by the great fish and still smelling with those gastric juices. You're at a perfect time to go into Nineveh and to share with them a little bit about what it means to come under the disciplinary measures of the Lord.
See, what I love about God is that he's a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. Would you have given Jonah a second shot? I mean, really. You know, bosses in this room, employee makes a mistake, would you have given him a second chance? I mean, God's own reputation is here on the line. He's got a prophet who just disavows him and goes in the opposite direction. This is embarrassing. But what does God do? He uses it as a means to accomplish a great end. You see, it's not just Jonah, though. It's not just Jonah that has second chances in here. I want you to see that this passage is really built around the reality that Nineveh has a second chance. That Nineveh has a second chance. Look at what Jonah does as he goes into Nineveh, verse 4, and he preaches the message of God. Look at what he says. Yet 40 days, get this, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Oh, this is an awesome message to preach. As a pastor, preacher, I just wish I could say that all day long. (laughs) To go in among my enemies and basically put a bullseye on my chest. That's exactly what God has done, you see, here with Jonah. Jonah is going right into the the lion's den of its enemies, ready to be torn from limb. I'm sure that he spoke those words as he went into Nineveh and then braced, you know, for arrows and for swords to be drawn or at least be run out on a rail, and yet none of those things happen. What's remarkable is we read in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed the message of God. He believed the message of God. You know, this kind of message is not, it's not one that, certainly it's not a visiting preacher's text that he would choose in order to go and meet some people for the first time. That's what Jonah is. I think I'll say this. No, that's not the spirit of this. Jonah is a man who now is so resting in the call of God and he has now submitted himself to so deeply to the will of God that he wouldn't dream of not going in and saying exactly what God has called him to say into Nineveh. What's the worst Nineveh could do? Kill him. He just almost died. Jonah just came back from the grave. Did you notice? This is a man who has died and been risen again. He now, in a sense, has his hair on fire. He's answering the call of the Lord and he's ready to speak the word of the Lord. If this is a God who's just saved you through the belly of a fish, I think I'm going to trust him as I go into Nineveh to speak his message. I think I'll trust that he's going to accomplish what it is that he wants to accomplish. And against all odds, surprise, surprise, they believed Jonah, the city, Nineveh. And it's the kind of belief that's repentant. That's what's remarkable about it. It doesn't say repentance with regards to the nature of belief, but it displays repentance. Look at the way it puts it in verse 5. It says, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, it really means that. The king of Nineveh, we're told, begins to disrobe and put on sackcloth. He sits in ashes and then gives a proclamation for everyone, even the animals, the livestock, to be on a mandatory fast before the Lord. Now, if you spend much time in the, in the Word, you've probably run across these things like sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Now, these are practices that are connected to grief. 
and to loss, but they're also practices that are connected to repentance. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 among the people of God. When Ezra the scribe gets up and reads the scriptures, he preaches, much like Jonah has done here in Nineveh, to the throng of Israelites who had gathered. In hearing the word, we're told that they're pierced to the heart and they respond in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. They begin to confess their sins and the sins of their forefathers. Now I want you to know that Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 is speaking to the Israelites, God's covenant people. Here in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah, a visiting runaway prophet, recently spit up by a great fish, comes in to Nineveh, his enemies, and he preaches a message of judgment. They believe and immediately begin to repent. There is no example in the entirety of the Old Testament that comes close to the transformation that we see here in Nineveh. Nowhere. You're not going to see a foreign city do what Nineveh does anywhere else in the Old Testament. And who was his instrument? That's right, Jonah. What was his message? Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overwhelmed. What does this tell you? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It has nothing to do with Jonah. It's never had anything to do with Jonah. God has set his love upon the nations and his will for salvation will not be thwarted. That's what he's going to do. This is what he's going to accomplish. This a picture of repentance in Nineveh is striking. It's astonishing. No one would expect it. Most people in Israel wouldn't even want it. It's the enemies of Israel that we're talking about here. This is radical repentance. Now it bears pausing for just a minute and say, okay, we're using this language of repentance. What does it actually mean to repent? It's one of those great Christian words that we throw around we might not really have much sense as to what it actually means. But I want to distill it down for you because you see it here in this text. What really heartfelt true repentance looks like, and it's really two marks. It's turning from sin and turning to God. If we just boil it down, it's turning from sin and it's turning to God. And I want you to see that the turning from sin began in the very hearts of those who were Ninevites when God came to them through the prophet of Jonah and he began to expose their sin. You see, this is what real sorrow for sin is. That's how really repentance begins. It begins with true sorrow for sin, not the kind of sorrow that you and I often have for our sin. You know this. You know the kind of sorrow that's just sad because you got caught? You know where you're just embarrassed? You're like, yeah, this is going to be awkward for a while. Yep, people know things now on me. That's not good. That kind of feeling where we just kind of want to hide in the corners and disappear because we're embarrassed. It's the kind of sorrow for sin that has to do simply with getting caught. We also know the sorrow for sin about being sad about the consequences. You know, where you get caught in something and you go, oh, this could be my job. This could be my marriage. This is going to play itself out potentially in really, really negative ways in my life. I feel really bad about it because we're connected to consequences. It's not the kind of sorrow that's merely the superficial kind about getting caught or that which regards consequence. It's about sorrow for sin for the sake of the sin itself. It's being grieved over the reality of the darkness that's captured your soul and the offense that you have given to Almighty God. 
You see, this is what real sorrow is. This is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief. That's the language he uses for it. Paul actually had written a letter to the church at, at Corinth, scathing letter, scolding them on several fronts. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm really sorry that my letter grieved you. But I'm not really sorry that my letter grieved you. Because when it grieved you, it grieved you into repentance. And he said, godly grief grieves us into repentance. It produces a repentance that actually leads to life. You see, when we are sincere about our, sorry, our sorrow for sin, our sorrow for sin begins to mature in a turning away from that sin. It only makes sense. If we're really grieved over the sin, we're not going to continue in it. But if we're grieved over the consequences of the sin, we just hope that the consequences will be taken away and we'll go back to the sin. If we're grieved over getting caught, we'll just fly through the embarrassment for a little while and then we'll go back to the old patterns and old habits. If we're really sorrowing and grieving for the sin itself, for the offense that it is before Almighty God, and for the horror that it is as an affront to Him, then we'll want to begin to turn away from that sin. That's how repentance is really born. I want you to see this is what's happening here. Look at Jonah chapter 3 verse 8. In the proclamation that the king gave, we read this. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Let them turn away from. That's the language of repentance. In fact, it's the classic word that's used for repentance in the Hebrew right there in that text. Let them turn away from the violence and the evil that is in their hands. This is what this means, friends. It means that you've not repented if you just feel bad about it. It's, you've not repented if you've just mouthed some words of confession. You've repented at the moment you begin to turn from that sin and you begin to put it to death. True repentance always manifests itself in an action of the will, a change in behavior. This is the way J.I. Packer puts it. He says, repentance is a change of mind or heart that issues in a change of life. Now, as we begin to think about repentance in this way, it gets actually pretty unnerving, doesn't it? Because how many times do you confess your sins and not really change? That the grace and the gift of repentance doesn't seem to really be taking hold of your heart. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? This is why I think Thomas Boston really helps us here in his wonderful book, True Repentance. Notice what he says here. He says, the impenitent sinner is a misled traveler who, having found himself wrong, will travel no longer in that direction, but will leave the wrong way and seek the right one. To repent of sin and to remain in it is a contradiction. Though sin, listen to this, will remain in him. Speaking of the person who repented. That sin will not reign in him as it has before. Turning from sin will never be perfected in this life. Therefore, the true penitent is always turning and renewing his repentance. Oh, now that sounds more familiar. A real change begins to take hold of us. You hear what he says? Turning from sin, that sin still remains within us, but it doesn't reign within us. We begin to experience the loosening of the grip of sin on our lives, where things that used to have almost a stranglehold over us now begin to be loosened. And we begin to see that a change happens. Didn't we say this last week, that change is slow? 
It takes all of us a long time, but God in his faithfulness never gives up. That's what he's doing here. He's really bringing the reality of repentance to bear when he begins to make a change within our lives. Now, when we begin to be a repenting repenter, if I can put it that way, one who is constantly turning from sin unto the Lord, you will understand then why you must turn to the Lord. You can't just turn from sin. Some of us have tried that. We've tried to turn from sin and just go start doing the right thing. You know, don't do this, just start doing the right thing. Yeah. I wish it were that easy, don't you? I find I struggle with that. Oh, I must be alone in this room. Lots of blank faces right now. Um, When I just simply try in the best strength that I can muster to put to death sin and then go do what is right, if I start tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. by 6.15, we're off target. We go off to the rails very quickly. All right, the realization is in repentance, we don't turn from sin unto righteousness. We turn from sin unto God. Well, that's different. Why is that different? What's different because it's in the turning to God that we get the strength and the power for the change. If you try to turn from sin unto doing the right thing, you know what you're going to try to do? You're going to try to do the right thing in your strength and you're going to fail. If you turn from sin unto God, in the midst of seeking to do good, God begins to grant through the power of His Spirit and the Gospel the strength to begin to slowly put to death sin and to live into righteousness. You see, that's the work that He does. That's what we see happening in verse 8. When the king says to call out mightily to the Lord. He says, call out mightily to the Lord. He doesn't just say, do all of these actions, start straightening things up, get your ducks in a row. He does all of the sackcloth and the ashes and the fasting, but he says the key is calling out mightily to the Lord. Do you know what happens when you begin to call out mightily to the Lord? And do you know what in context he's actually asking for? He's realizing that the more that you fight sin, you know what happens? Sin fights back. You've noticed this, right? Like a temptation comes your way and you begin to say no to it, it just goes away, right? That's your experience, right? Oh, no. It comes back bigger and better. Doesn't it? This is why we have a wrong conception of the Lord Jesus Christ even when he lived on the earth. You know, we kind of think he has that Superman card in his back pocket that he just flashes whenever anything difficult comes up. But the realization, as a man made in human nature, in the likeness of you and I, experiencing weakness and struggle, yes, even temptation like you and I, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the remarkableness of him, is as a man who was perfect and yet existing in a fallen world with tremendous pressures being brought upon him at every turn, consistently said no. You know what happens to us? We say no, 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 okay, yeah. That's what we do. And so when we begin to think, oh, Jesus, you know, he just had that little, you know, Superman card. He flashed out. He was able to do it. Actually, what was going on with Christ was the mounting pressures of temptations that you and I have not even begun to experience. Can you imagine if the biggest sin that has the greatest stronghold on your life right now, you begin saying no to and not saying yes to, And you strive with all of your might 
to be able to put it to death. You know what's going to happen to that temptation? It's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. It's going to break you down. Sin always wants the whole. That's its goal. It's out to destroy you. The interesting thing is God always wants the whole too. But his intentions are different. They're different than the intentions of the sin. In this particular context, what we find is that as he goes to the Lord, he goes to the Lord mightily calling to the Lord, the king and all of those who are in Nineveh. You know why? Because they know they're going to need mercy. They're crying out for mercy. They're crying out for mercy. Do you see, once you have tried to fight the battle of sin and have failed, you know you need mercy. You know you're not going to lick it. You know this is bigger than me. This is stronger than me. I'm going to need somebody else in my court. I'm going to need somebody else on my side. And most of all, I'm going to need a God who's willing to grant me mercy. We know that that's what they're crying out for. Look at verse 9 of the text. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's his hope. Mercy, that the Lord won't essentially follow through with the threat that's been offered. The king understood this. And amazingly, in verse 10, we read these words. When God saw what they did, looking into the heart and the life of these Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Don't you see what the text is saying? That Nineveh has a second chance. Nineveh has a second chance. Now, for those of you who have studied the text of Scripture, you've got your mind full of all kinds of things. You're wondering, but how can God do that? Okay, I mean, he's already told us that he's going to threaten Nineveh. He's going to bring this judgment. And can he just, as it were, as it's read in the text, can he just change his mind? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. In the first place, I think it's important to see that God's decision to relent from the judgment that he threatened through the voice of Jonah is a picture of God's consistency and faithfulness. It's not a picture of his capriciousness or of his changeableness. Why do I say that? I ran across this quote from Hugh Martin and it struck me deeply this week and I began to realize just how rich God's faithfulness is and I think he begins to show it to us this morning. Listen to what he wrote in his commentary. He says, it was wicked, it was violent, it was unrighteous, it was proud, it was luxurious Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. That's the Nineveh that God had threatened to destroy. But God never threatened sitting in sackcloth and ashes Nineveh. God never threatened humbled in the depths Nineveh. That Nineveh God has never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin because that Nineveh he would never ruin. You see what Martin is getting at? Martin is getting at the same principle that we described with Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah was going to need to be swallowed by a fish to get on the right track. And he became a different Jonah in Jonah chapter 3. One who walks according to the word of the Lord. Do you see what happened here in, in chapter 3? Nineveh in verse 1 is radically different than Nineveh in verses 9 and 10. The Nineveh which God had threatened to destroy and let's say, friends, he will destroy through his righteousness and holiness. He will destroy. 
is a different Nineveh than the one who has been transformed through the preaching of Jonah in verses 9 and 10. What it shows us is God's faithfulness, not his changeableness. Because his faithfulness is this. He will judge unrepentance and he will always deliver those who are repentant. That's his promise. That's his promise. He will judge those who are unrepentant. He will give deliverance to those who are repentant. That's the principle of his consistency. He says it from cover to cover in his Bible. And guess what? You and I won't slip through the cracks. This is why in 1 John 1, 9, we read so clearly this principle. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we might wonder with those words in 1 John 1, 9, faithful and just. We might wonder how is God faithful and just in this particular context? How is it that he can withhold justice and extend mercy to sinful pagan Nineveh? How can God forgive sin and remain just and remain holy? How can he do that? Well, Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on Jonah, suggests a hint of how that works in verse 10 of our text. One that really this week just was so encouraging to me to reflect on. You see, throughout the passage here in Jonah chapter 3, the traditional word for repentance is given. It's the word shabu. It means to turn away. So in verse 8, when they're told to turn away from their evil and then to call out mightily to the Lord, it's the classic Hebrew word for repentance. But Baldwin notes that the word for relent in verse 10, which can also be translated repentance, God's turning away, is not the word shabu, it's the word nakam. The word nakam carries with it the idea of suffering. It carries the notion of suffering. It even has the idea of compassion. That the Lord in his relenting is moving towards Nineveh, and in his moving towards Nineveh, he experiences the suffering of the moving towards Nineveh. The word is rich in the Hebrew. And what Baldwin suggests, I think, is hinted at, at least in the text, and then is the large scope of what the Bible teaches, and it's this, that God's merciful choice to turn away judgment from Nineveh was because God knew that he was going to turn Nineveh's judgment on himself. You see, that's exactly what he did in the cross. I hope that you've never thought that God simply sweeps your sin underneath the rug. That he's, he's play acting with Nineveh and he's acting like it's not so bad. Let's just let bygones be God bygones. Let's forget that past. You're now on blazing new trails. No, no, no. He's saying, I can give mercy to Nineveh in their repentance because the judgment that they are due, I'm going to turn on myself. I'm going to pour it on myself. You see, this is why this passage hints at the big story of the gospel, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there where God turned the wrath of Nineveh on himself. It's there where God turned the wrath of your life that should be due to you from the Lord. God turned it on himself. And it's the reason that he can move towards Nineveh in mercy and the reason he can move towards you in mercy today is because every single ounce, every drop of the judgment that was attributed to you has been satisfied at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Every single bit of it. There's nothing on you. There's nothing on you. Now, you may not believe me, but it's true. Your record is absolutely spotless, not because you are sinless, but because the sinless one has the entire record of your sin poured out on him. He has satisfied it. God will not require additional judgment for that which has been finished. That would be unjust. He and his justice has to uphold his mercy because he has satisfied in Christ. And what that means is that you are today and every day given a second chance and a third and a thousandth and a millionth because that's what it will take to bring you home. That's what this text is saying. And I would say if you get that, that does not make you lazy in the Christian life. It makes you so full of love that you are motivated beyond imagining to serve and live for a God like that. What else would be an appropriate response to that kind of kindness? Do you see, it is not God every Sunday coming in here, beating you over the head, shaming you into repentance. Paul tells us clearly in the book of Romans, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. This is the God you want to serve. This is the God who leads you to turn from your sin unto him. This is the God who you want to rest and receive. And the one in whom you want to day in and day out embrace. Because he is day in and day out embracing you. You see, Jonah has learned this, that this is a God of second chances. Nineveh has learned that this is a God of second chances. Have you learned that this is a God of second chances? And third and fourth, have you learned that it's not about your faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness? Have you learned it's not about your gifts, it's about his grace? Have you learned it's never about you? And in God's great mercy, it's all about you. That our God makes you the object of his love. And he pays the ultimate price and lives even right now at the right hand of the Father. As your mind wanders in the midst of this sermon, maybe even in the sinful thoughts, Jesus died for that too. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It is astonishing how kind he is. And it's a kindness that moves us from one degree of glory to the next. He is the God who has paid the penalty for our sins. He is the God who has broken the power of sin. He is the God who will eventually eradicate the presence of sin. This is the road we're on. The path of the gospel. Let him carry you. It is finished, my friends. Walk in the joy of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. I need to hear this. Lord, you are the God of second chances. You are the God who doesn't give up on us. You're, on the, you're the God who doesn't disqualify us the moment we fail. You're the God who uses even our disqualifying sins to qualify us for new areas of ministry. It's unbelievable. Salvation belongs to you. And today, Lord, we just, 
We, we just sit before this text together with our jaws on the floor, astonished that you would love us unto this kind of remarkable grace, that you have placed your love upon us at this depth. Father, I would ask that you would begin then in this room to break down the strongholds of unrepentant sin. That you would in this room begin to expose the sins that we are trying to hide. You make it very clear in Jonah chapter 3, you will not abide with such foolishness. But you will forever forgive those who willingly repent of their sin. So Lord, let us in your grace come out of hiding and enjoy the bright glory of your sunshine. And know that within its light, as scary as it seems to come out, it is actually the beauty and the glory of your brilliance that clothes us in righteousness. Lord, we want to know that. At a deep level, we want as a community to be like that. And then, Lord, we want, like Jonah, to go out into our community. For, Lord, we need you to bring this kind of change to Franklin, to Nashville, to the United States of America. Lord, we need you to multiply Jonas in our midst. Men and women who are not ashamed to say, I was spit up by a fish as a faithless prophet, but I'm telling you, he loves you. Come to him. He will redeem you. You're never past the point of rescue. You're not too far gone. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, bring the sheep home. That's your work. That's your heartbeat. That's what you've called us to. And Lord, today we're listening to your mission. We don't want to flee from your presence. We want to say yes according to the word of the Lord. So by your grace, forge it in our spirits now as you humbly lead us to give our lives away to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.